Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. My guest this week is another true delight, a creator of soundscapes, visionary sounds, and guitar magic like very few people on this planet. As is, Ibrahim tells stories of meeting with Paul, forming a magical bond with him, Steve's White and Craddock, Mick Talbot, and tales of creating fabulous music together for Paul's albums, including Sonic Kicks and Illumination, along with work from the two of them that you're likely to have never heard before. This is another cracker of a conversation, so let's get into it. As is Ibrahim, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, man. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Dan. People listening to the podcast won't be able to see this, but I can see you, and the room you're in is clearly a, a big deal. The amount of guitars in this room that you're in, <laughs> where are you? I'm just in a loft in my house in um, Longside in Manchester in the council estate I was born on. I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. You get sent to the top of the house to do your, to do your guitar. Well, in <laughs> it was actually a move, so I needed to shift. So I thought the only space where I'd get a little bit of peace, and it's not really that peaceful and quiet because there's a high like skylight just there and outside all the all the neighbors are out screaming and shouting in their gardens and there's chickens going off and <laughs> I, I live in the heart of you know Longsight Anson Estate and it's kind of it's such a mixed bag community wise multicultural I mean it's so lively here but um, sometimes you just want to get some sleep at like 3 4 a.m and not listen to two women screaming and fighting over some guy they've both been seeing <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited about getting into this stuff with you um, I want to kick off first of all when you discovered the music of Paul Weller I mean like everybody I think I just grew up with it you know as in you knew the jam tunes I really didn't know earlier than that because it was kind of a you know it was a southern thing for me and uh, being a northerner you know there was the bands that I was exposed to up here so obviously you know I'm in that relationship with I mean not that I'm that old but you know Lonnie Donegan being kind of the roots of kind of the music scene in Manchester and that 
that kind of coffee shop era. I grew up with that kind of era because I, I came into music through rockabilly, really. Well, later on, as a punk scene here, really, I think from exposure through like the Buzzcocks and so forth and all the Manchester connections, all, you know, Liverpool connections, it was, um, that was the first taste of. But as it developed and the songs were kind of, I, I don't know, I mean, people have got different tastes, but I, I thought they kind of, the songs started to get really, they were refined. I thought they were, he was really growing as a songwriter. I just grew with that. I thought the band was maturing uh, and was creating. Some bands go kind of off track, but I think with the jam, they really were on track, as in we're just getting better and better. And all the tunes were just like, oh, this is just killer. So it, when he got into that kind of new wave period, it was just firing, just kicking. <laughs> I mean, musicians, we are motivated by bands and artists during our growth, inspired by them. And I was inspired by that, but I wasn't like a hardcore fan fan because my aim was to learn to play the guitar and to learn as and just to keep growing as a musician and then go from playing the guitar to being a band member and then from a band member to being a songwriter. That's what I really loved about it and why I listened to it because I was like, wow, this guy's, how is he singing and playing and also jumping around and putting so much energy? I mean, it, that energy was really what got me and to this day, I have never seen a more powerful and energetic individual, let alone the band. I mean, I can't talk about every member, but I can talk about Paul because obviously after work, with him and, and developing a friendship I have never seen a more powerful and energetic individual you know the, how I can prove that quite simply that if you've ever seen Mr. Weller perform with an acoustic guitar he doesn't need a band does he he just needs a decent song and off he goes and that voice and his whole attitude and persona projects everything that I'm saying Matt Dayton was talking about the fact that rehearsals are, are full on it's like a gig and, and that energy and I don't know I mean, it's, I mean it's remarkable Paul's nearly 20 years older than me I'm 40 no 46 oh god and I've got two young kids six and four and I'll be honest I'm knackered Absolutely knackered. He's got young kids, twins, and and, and a young girl. Um, yeah, but still, yeah. like continually, like <laughs> moving forward, doing new stuff. It's incredible. Well, I, I mean, I heard recently that he's not going to make any more albums or something. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, that could just mean that his approach will be different. That he's going to make singles, or he's going to make a series of, you know, or it's content that he's. I mean, let's call it what it is. Yeah, content creation. So, I mean, I'm the same way. That's why there's a ton of guitars here. You know, not just here. These are my working ones. And then I've got, you know, I've got 50 guitars in total because of the kind of, uh, I keep them like in the cases or storage or whatever, depending on what they are and how often they get used. But I'm full on right now. I'm like a little, I'm 15 or something and I'm just really keen to learn and on Zoom with, <laughs> as I am with all my gear and I kind of embrace digital. I, I haven't got time to moan about it, I think, you know, and I think he's like that. He hasn't got time to moan about it. He just gets on with it and he finds his different inspirations. I mean, when I've spoken with him about bands, I might have moaned and groaned about certain bands, but he was always positive about new up and coming bands, as you can tell by his support roster as well. Mm. He is always supportive of young because I think he sees himself as he was in those, in, in a young band. I mean, I, let me tell you, in all honesty, I have never met or worked with an artist like him. And I've had the privilege of working, you know, being in the Stone Roses. Call it what it is, as an observer, a sober observer from the inside, looking out, <laughs> experiencing what they experience. That, you know, they gave me that privilege of the ride of saying, hey, you're in our band. 
come and see what we see, what we've created. Uh, it wasn't my creation. Uh, it was their creation. And I, I, I tagged along and I rode that uh, just to, because they invited me. Even after that, meeting Paul, I met Paul through Steve White and uh, because I was in that band, The Players. I don't know if you know The Players. Mm. Yeah, with Mick Talbot as well, right? It was Mick Talbot. It was Steve White. It was uh, Damon Minchella and uh, myself. To me, it was like incredible. Uh, each musician that I mean, obviously they knew each other and I was the northerner. So I was the northern monkey. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and, uh, they were all the southerners together, you know, and um, I met Paul through Steve White. I think we were just at Paul Smith's <laughs> trying to get freebies. Yeah, you were in Covent Garden, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I was there with uh, Ian Brown and <laughs> trying to get freebies. You know, we're there. What? Because they, hey, we're big fans. Hey, Paul, we're big fans no can we have any free clothes mate so i can go spend my money on well for me it was guitars and pedals and amps and things that's what i saved my money for and maybe a date you know <laughs> if you're lucky yeah <laughs> yeah if you're lucky um, for others i can't speak for it was 98 i think it was and when we walked in paul smith in Covent garden and steve walked in with him and um i knew steve and and then paul said to me he said when, when he saw me it was him that said all right i see it's nice to meet you and then i'll say you wrote fucking my star didn't you <laughs> and I went, well, well, I wrote the music, yeah. And then he goes, fucking brilliant, that tune. Fucking brilliant. And that's how our relationship started. <laughs> Just based on him listening to music, obviously he was interested in what Ian Brown's output was going to be after the demise of the Roses. And this was the first single. I mean, I mean Melody Maker and NME hid most of my kind of contribution. I, I mean, I've still got the magazines because they angered me and I kept that as like a fuel to motivate me to work harder. But they used to write things like, oh, Ian played everything and he did this all by himself. And I was like, I brought him back <laughs> to playing the bass, the drums, the guitars, writing the music at home in this very house and, you know, um, in this little box room. And that's how the press treat you. Yeah, but I mean, I was new to the game. I got my baptism of fire in the roses. Before that, I never had in Simply Red. I never had that kind of, because it was in the background and mm. it was kind of, you know, it was all about Mick and it was me, me, me. Uh, he's a me, me, me kind of guy. And, um, but with this, it was different. That backlash, well, I don't want to call it a backlash, but it was, that, I don't know what to call it, animosity, hatred, or, or just plagiarism of the way one magazine does it and they all follow suit. But when we, we met, it was, it was just that. It was this, this guy has all this credibility has all this history, talent. And then he's been listening, obviously, in his progress. He's picked up on the details and he's clocked the truth. Mm. And he mm. said to me, X. And that was the beginning of our relationship. I, and, I, and I always say this, you ask anybody, whenever they ask me about Paul, I always say, the nicest guy, most intelligent, most musical person I have ever met and a friend, a real friend, somebody that you can trust that has your back and that stands up for you. I mean, let's get things straight. My relationship with Paul is this way, that I'm not his musician. I'm not his band, right? He knew that that relationship was different. And he made a disconscious decision because they, he let it slip when he was, he was the guy that used to get drunk and I didn't. So I remember everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't remember if it was Jacobs or whether it was studio or whether it was at his place, uh, a black barn. A black yeah. barn. I can't remember if it was there or, or earlier. And he was kind of like, um, 
contemplating whether I was going to play with him or not. I could even kind of go in, nah, no, it's not going to because, uh, you know, we want to keep it a friendship. We want to keep this a uh, prolific kind of, you know, writing and, you know, keep our relationship what it is, friendship and music and not employer employee, which can change the dynamic completely. And, and I respect that. And, I, and I'm thankful that that's how we've kept it because it's kept the friendship where it should be. Um, you'd have to ask Chopper, you know, uh, about friendships and working with somebody because obviously he's with his own band. So Ocean Color Scene and, you know, Steve Craddock, sorry to those that don't know his nickname. You know, that, that relationship started and stayed maintained all the way to, to today. And, and I mean, and I mean that most sincerely, folks, <laughs> I, I just kind of have this utmost respect for him ever since that day um, in Paul Smith's right till now. And I was just saying that we did a show at the Roundhouse in Camden. I don't know if you remember this, but it was the Jim Capaldi tribute. Let's come back to that because I have to okay. so I need to understand. So when did you start working together? So when did it, it cross that boundary of, of, of collaborating? Because there was the Middle Road EP, which you worked on, which was you leading. And then there was this, where is it? Um, he's the Keeper. He's the the CD yeah, single where you were on the, you were on the, the B album. side, Heliocentric, right? Heliocentric. Okay. Let's call it Heliocentric. And, um, but that was a release through the newspaper. Uh, I think it was a free. Oh, was it? So was it not a, a sing, an actual buy in a shop release? I don't think so. I okay. think it came as a free release through, I can't remember, one of the tabloids. Right. This is nuts, kind of insane instrumental mashup thing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that's where we kind of had common ground. He saw my band, which if anybody knows my band, it's like the White Stripes from Bombay, <laughs> basically. <laughs> okay. It's like a two, it's a duo of two, an Indian and a Pakistani. British, Pakistani, British, Indian, a tour de force of like Indian tabla and Pakistani guitar, or I like to call it um, Yorkshire and Lancashire because I'm Mancunian and he's a Leeds boy, but lives yeah. in Birmingham. So he heard this tabla guitar outfit that I'd put together. Oh, actually, I mean, it starts earlier than that, but it was later on that he, you know, my band developed from this super group that I had, which was with Mike Joyce and Andy Rock from the Smiths. So a lot of people don't know it because the album never got released, but the EP did, which is Middle Road. So that band, that super group was what Paul saw and invited us to tour with him as support on. He kind of saw, it was, as it developed into this band, he went, you guys remind me, and this is how deep his knowledge of music is. He says, you guys remind me of Coltrane, <laughs> Coltrane, John Coltrane. And he says, Interstellar, the last album, Interstellar. And if anybody knows that album, Interstellar is absolute nuts. It's his last album before he died. Uh, God bless him. It's absolutely like chaos, jazz chaos. Next level jazz chaos is the best way to describe <laughs> it. And um, he kind of saw that in me. I'm pretty sure of it. And when we came together to write, obviously he, you know, his influences that everybody knows, you know, he wears them on his sleeve, you know, the Beatles or whatever it is. It's kind of, it's there. So there's that certain period of the Beatles. I think that he, he loves but creating his own kind of madness. <laughs> I think he loves that. I mean, if I can speak for him on that, but this is where, you know, I don't like speaking on other people's behalf, but that's the impression that I got. And I think he knew that I'm a, 
I'm a kind of a, a soundscape kind of guy, a sonic guy. Sometimes I don't like calling myself a musician. I like calling myself a, a you know, a soundsmith or a, an audio uh, creator. I, I don't see music always as notes and as conventional. You know, it can be atonal. It can be just attitude. It could be, you know, Andy Warhol or something, you know, in music. And, and I'm so glad that he's that way too. There's an Indian instrument called the sarod, and it has 25 strings. <laughs> okay, it, it looks like a banjo with a massive sitar neck on it, with a metal neck, and it has four melody strings, uh, four uh, drones, yes, two chikaris, which are like the five-string banjo extra strings, and then he has 15 sympathetics. I hope that adds up to 25. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to check. <laughs> How many? Hold on, but you still have the same amount of fingers, right? <laughs> hey, but you still only have these fingers and they don't respond to the brain as you want them to. I played this instrument uh, um, for him and he was like, he already had an album. He sent me an album saying of this Sarod player that he was into. He sent me this vinyl <laughs> in a sleeve and he says check this guy out and, um, so his knowledge was it was vast it was diverse that's what I loved about yeah. him you know I just kind of or I love about him it's just diverse knowledge of music and um, he sent me this thing and we got it onto the recordings as well and into various tracks um, but that track as well yeah definitely so that kind of being able to explore soundscapes and things and creating madness and things, that was one of the foundations of the musical relationship. And was that recorded at Chris Difford's studio? Because the album Heliocentric doesn't have an S in it, and it's named after his studio. Your track, um, Heliocentric, has an S in it, which is named after the mixing desk at, uh, at Heliocentric. Literally. But yeah, where, where did you do it? Did you do your bits and send it on to him, or did you meet up and do it together? No, no, no. It was in the studio. I'm trying to remember the studio. I mean, it was a posh, posh knob studio in uh, London. Uh, it wasn't um, a new studio. It was one of the old established places. So we, I'd also worked with him at the at Noel's studio, uh, Noel Gallagher's place, when he had his, well, where he had either you know put all his equipment and rented or whatever somewhere in like a southern countryside. It's all one thing to me. Let's go where you need. So yeah, the, the song he was talking about the um, so illumination was the 2002 was the um, was the album where weren't you learning that was it was that instrument called Sarod Sarod and weren't you yeah. learning it at the time though. I'm learning it now. <laughs> As we speak, you know, I, I, um, I'm, yeah, I'm learning. I, I, everything I do is self-taught. So it was one of those things where that punk attitude towards, you know, what the guitar is, you know, for me, it was a rebellious symbol and instrument that I could rebel against culture, religion, peer pressure, every single pressure that I'm under. And also when I took that instrument on, it was it's an Indian classical instrument, well revered, well respected, played by absolute masters. So I'm like that, yeah, the sex pistols of <laughs> this is the Sarod. <laughs> you know, no idea. Learned my information from friends and then later on off YouTube when it appeared but generally just through research and uh, a thirst for wanting to find out for myself, you know, self-achievement kind of thing. You know, that, yeah. that's all I want is just that satisfaction that I taught myself and created a tune on it, can play a tune on it. That's it. Not that I fall into the categories of how it should be played or, you know, even to sit on a seat and play it is blasphemy. <laughs> you know, it's played sitting down with a certain right. leg position. Just like the sitar. But hey, I'm a monk. I'm an old <laughs> state working class boy. I just kind of approached it as in got no money. Nobody's around. 
I just have to do whatever I have to do. <laughs> and um, I found a piece of paper. I can't remember where I got this. I printed it out from somewhere and uh, how to tune it kind of thing. I found out what the tunings were for the strings. But he really took to it. He really, because I think because he knew the instrument and I think lots of other people didn't know it. And it just resonated well. Mm. <laughs> no pun intended, but it resonated with him. Yeah. yeah, there's two tracks on the Illumination album, Spring at Last, which is this instrumental, and then All Good Books. Um, and I don't know, again, if this was recorded as a band in the studio or separate, but has Carleen Anderson and um, Jocelyn Brown, plus Damon Minchella on that one as well. I mean, like a lovely song. I, mean, I was listening to it directly before we, we, we spoke. Uh, I was listening to that one. I, I really like that tune. You know, uh, one of the things uh, Paul and I discussed a lot was uh, religion believe it or not. And obviously me being a Muslim or trying to practice Muslim, which is very hard in the rock and roll industry. Yeah. <laughs> you. When, you go, when you got one woman sat on one lap and another on the other lap and then they're trying to force champagne down your throat, it's hard. <laughs> Excuse the expression, but it's very difficult. <laughs> you know, I've got through it. And um, with him, I think it was just, I don't know whether it's the intrigue, but we did have these discussions a lot about religion and so forth. And I'm not quite sure of his heritage in terms of our conditioning, in terms of Christianity or whatever, but me being a Muslim was constant discussion, as you can see by the tracks later on, you know, I mean, yeah. my vocals on God, but we will come to that later, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. We always had that. And lyrically, you can see it in his lyrics that he is often uh, approaching that subject. And I seem to be one of those people that, maybe triggered some of his um, thought patterns or thoughts about it and you know, kind of lyrics that appeared. Um, but Illumination was, that was more kind of playing guitar on tracks or playing Sarod or whatever, you know, um, on his songs or songs that he was writing or collaborating with. I've got to admit that even through the whole process, I still have that problem of being treated as an equal, that Paul is the only person that I found who treats me as an equal. I mean, so does uh, Chopper and so does uh, Whitey. And I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about when music is presented to the world, you're guaranteed that they're going to put Kelly's name on there or Noel's name on there or whoever's name on there. And to me, being a person of color and a person of different culture, I mean, my culture is music. <laughs> you know, that's my first culture. But all this other stuff, it, it, it's there. You know, we, we could talk about racism in music for day in, day out and year on. It is still there. And every time I would play, it was still an issue with me about, you know, recognition or equality, really. You know, people think, oh, you just want fame or something. You just want this. But it's not. It's about equality. It's about, it's like Black Lives Matter. You know, it's about being recognized mm. and just being recognized as an equal, just as the same, not as something, a lesser being. And I always had that problem. Or It's not a problem, but I always had that issue, you know, when recording and playing. And even on those recordings and playings, I, I felt that once it been released and then you saw the press that came out and you go, is it because I is Welsh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's my favorite saying. I, I, sorry, Ali, I, I've always said that. You wouldn't have had visas refused in the middle of a tour and everybody else in the band who's white has got their visa and I'm the only one. I always used to say at the consulate, you know, is it because I is Welsh in that? <laughs> Just cute. But that must, yeah, know. that 
that must be the, the um something you said there where i think it seems to me that paul is always somebody who, who talks a lot in, in the press about the contributors to an album and whether that's picked up on or not is is often the kind of i guess always supports always there yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean i mean i don't know if you want to get into that camden story right now but it's relevant in, in on all these subjects because it's interesting because as is now there's like a little um a little note that is kind of dedicated to jim capaldi one of the, and he says one of the greatest drummers ever obviously he was a um, legendary member of traffic regularly yeah. played with clapton and ha- uh, george harrison and so you did the tribute concert with paul so how did that come about it came through an invite he rang me up and said, right. do you want to come and play guitar with me? I think it was just because he wanted to do something different. I mean, he's got a, an unbelievable, fabulous musician in Steve Craddock with him. It's like, you know, it's like your mum's the best cook in the world, but you still like to go out to eat in takeaways, don't you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. maybe that's the equivalent that he rang me up and said, would you like to come and do this thing? But also because I knew Jim Capaldi. Right. It wasn't because um, right. it was just out of the blue. I, I knew Jim because originally my band, which was like a living colour <laughs> from Manchester in the 80s, we nearly signed to Island Records and were sat at um, the boardroom with um, Chris Blackwell. And we'd been brought into the meeting to Ireland through Jim Capaldi. Jim Capaldi used to come up to a recording studio in, in Manchester. Andy ran the studio, <laughs> Revolution. Yeah, it's called Revolution Studios and Andy. And the people that frequented there were people like Clapton and Pete Townsend and the likes of, and uh, it was connected. Now, Andy really believed in us, and um, we were called uh, Gina Gina <laughs> after a certain person's girlfriend. Uh, it was a singer's girlfriend, God bless him, he passed away. So Jim Capaldi had brought us down to uh, Island Records. So I developed a relationship within them, and he was a believer in the band because we didn't have any money. It was purely a case of he saw this black rock funk group from Manchester in the 80s. Vivid by Living Colour hadn't been released yet. So I knew him and I think Paul knew that. So I think the when he invited me, it was kind of, um, you know, I knew him, he knew him. So along we went, along I went to uh, Camden Roundhouse. Um, he told me the songs he wanted to play that he was going to sing and that's what he wanted to play. So I did play the electric sitar on one song. Uh, Coral Sitar, the Jerry Jones model. And then for those music heads here listening, maybe. Um, it was a Jerry Jones electric sitar. I played for one song and then the other song I played the electric guitar. But it was through his invitation. Now, let me tell you, I was treated like shit. It was one of those things. The whole reason why I wanted to be in a band was that it was just a sea of session musicians backing great stars from... You know, John Lord was stood on my left-hand side. You know, Bill Wyman was over there. And, you know, all these people are sucking up. And you got a musical director. And they're trying to push me around because it's a kind of a who are you, which is what happens normally. People look, I'm a kind of a anonymous, really. Even like to listeners, you kind of go, who's Aziz Ibrahim? And maybe yeah. you catch a glimpse here and there. But And the way that the press is, the media, yes, I'm always played down and I'm always kind of oh, the name that's left off. So that's how it is. So I'm here I am in this kind of royal fraternity of music. Obviously, Paul's a lead guy here. He's singing lead vocals on these songs and playing guitar. White is playing drums on the same tracks. And me personally, I've got this struggle on stage. <laughs> I've got a musical director trying to turn me down or move my amp around or, or the band is like you know, playing over me and I'm, I'm so I'm like muscling trying to get into these songs and play my part. It came to a point where it was like this MD is like, touch my amps. And I said, you touch that amp one more time, mate. And that fucking amp is going down your throat. And uh, that's where it ended up. 
that must be so it. bloody frustrating, though. It was frustrating, but it came to a point where, for this shit, why should I have to handle this? You're not paying me no wages. Yeah. I left this shit 10 years behind, 20 years ago. I ain't doing it no more. So it was that. He said, it's, it's going down your throat, pal. You touch that one more time. And so he scuttled off. And the guy who presented was that guy from, you see, I'm hopeless with names. So, <laughs> um, you told me a Muslim name. I'd know it's Arabic name. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm only joking. But um, it was the guy who pre- used to present the old grey whistle test. So he was presenting. Oh, Harris. Yeah, Mr. Harris opens up, presents the songs. When he presents the songs, I'm a special guest on this. Paul's invited me. And we are both walking on stage. So he presents Paul and he doesn't mention me at all. So I walk on like Billy No Mates, uh, kind of, you know, who's that? <laughs> Has he come to set up Paul's guitar or something? <laughs> you know, and um, so I, I thought, well, what can I do? So I walk over to my guitar on stage as he presents Paul on stage and so forth. Paul walks up to the microphone and you will see this on YouTube that when he gets introduced on stage, Paul walks up to the microphone and goes, and this is, he always mispronounces my name anyway. Aziz Ibrahim. <laughs> Aziz Ibrahim on guitar. Whatever it is he said. i never forget that day. I will never forget that respect. That heart that says, I consider everybody an equal. I consider, I have consideration for everyone. And this is what I'm talking about. I mean, it sounds like a rant, but my respect and my kind of admiration for him comes from that not about the music it comes from that about the human being about how he has always been with me and i'm sure he is with everybody else i know this might sound like a big up and it might be a payoff but this is the honest to god truth that i have been treated like this a lot in my life in music and sometimes there is a stand-up guy or girl who will show themselves what they truly are and he showed himself on that day and you can see i watch you on youtube just for that one little moment just to go good on you mate you know respect i felt great in myself played those two songs did my thing and it was just fun and again you know it points towards this relationship working with paul that i'm glad he maintained it as a friendship and occasionally you know i might write something like i did 22 dreams i think where i actually sat down and wanted to write something for him and i wrote that um, by the waters which he did on later with jules with the orchestra that was really something i didn't like the mix and i told him <laughs> and he said uh, uh well he really liked it and uh it was kind of well yeah you don't have to agree on everything, you know. This was Sonic Kicks, actually. So this is um, yeah, track, tracks four and five. And, and up until that point, you, I guess it's time back to the point that you just talked about where you have these these credits for playing. But this one, this is a thing where you actually have a writing credit, which, I, which is a lovely thing. Yeah, I mean, it was because I introduced him to my secret weapon, which was a baritone acoustic. And that's why I don't like the mix, because a baritone acoustic means it is like a bass in a way, a, a six string bass almost, but an acoustic one. And I made up these chords because that's what I do. I, I kind of, I put it in an open tuning, a, a, a weird tuning and I made up chords because there is no convention to it anymore once you change a tuning. And I wrote this progression of chords and we were at Black Barn and I said, Paul, I want to play you something. What do you think of these chords? And I played this progression and he just went, picked up a piece of paper and started writing. <laughs> it was as simple as that. And he came up with those lyrics for that by the waters. And, um, oh, it's lovely. That whole kind of, yeah, come, come now beside the water, sit and rest. And it's, oh, it's, a, it's a 
Brilliant Absolutely song. loved it. I mean, I even said to him about the track. I said, you know, the first take you did, that was the best take. <laughs> and then you got drunk. <laughs> it was downhill from there. But, uh, and then on top of that, when it was mixed, the guitar was never meant to be a normal acoustic. So it was mixed in a way, personally, I thought, in a way that it sounded like a normal acoustic. So all the bottom end was taken out and so forth. And it was supposed to sit in a certain way, bigger and bolder. So it sounded like, this is is it a guitar or is it something else? You know, it had a lot of body. It didn't need support from a bass guitar. It didn't need support from anything. I mean, this is about production, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the orchestra was genius. I mean, we, I said to him, Oh, we, I can't remember what it was both of us just talking about. Wouldn't it be great to have an orchestra and then have the arrangements kind of off center, really, you know, left field? And Paul brought a friend in to do an arrangement. Um, and that's how that tune ended up as it was. And, um, it was great spending time in the studio because I was like going through all Paul's gear and all the equipment that was there. <laughs> and he's got sitars and stuff and all these old memorabilia and things and they're laying around. And there are pictures and there are stuff online where you can actually see what the equipment's, you know, that he owns, all the original stuff from old Hammond organs, uh, you name it, he's got it. <laughs> mm. And, um, but it was great to see up front and kind of understand how his tone and I'm a guitarist. So obviously I'm going to look at that Marshall that he uses, that little combo he's always used and the Epiphones and the Gibsons and the Fenders that he used. And the, it's like Aladdin's cave for a musician really is. Yeah. And that song came about there in that way. And the other one followed as well in that way. Yeah, Sleep of the Serene, which is which comes just before on the album, if you're listening to it, just before oh. By the Waters, so, uh, track four and five. That was you just jamming with this massive pedal board, wasn't it? <laughs> it was like six foot long or something. That's right. Well, basically, it was like I made up these pedal boards just so that I could carry them down. It was like a Guinness Book of Records. Uh, how many pedals can we connect together? Uh, <laughs> It was like one pedal board next to another pedal board next to another all in a row. And there's a photograph of this somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just because I wanted to be able to, if I wanted to do something, it needed to be there on the floor. <laughs> I probably only used one, like a tube screamer or something. <laughs> but we had to connect them all together to be able to use them. So, uh, yeah, there was <laughs> the madness of that. And Yeah. It's this brilliant little inter- I say little inter- interlude. It's a few minutes long, but it's, it's it's you, Paul, and and then Charles mashing it all up together again, and that that chopping up, which on on Sonic Kicks album seems to be something that Paul was experimenting with with a lot more. And Andy Lewis talks about the fact that they were moving on to Pro Tools for the first time and away from analog. Everybody just kind of learning and experimenting together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the w- one thing people don't realize, or maybe some do, but uh, a lot don't realize that he embraced digital technology. And the craziness and the madness came from the producer remix. One well, producers or sound creators of Ableton and Logic and Pro Tools and all this kind of thing, where they were able to manipulate sound. Because yes, you can go back to the Beatles days and start doing, you know, uh, what uh, George Martin did or whatever. But this was the digital age, and there are tools that can, you know, which you can cut things down and is, and you can be more efficient in your work and the time factor and so forth. So. That was there all the time. So a lot of what you hear on those albums is that kind of cutting and pasting of um, sound on a digital audio workstation. And uh, I, I didn't even know that at the time. When in the studio, I, I saw it yeah. and I was like, wow, you know, talk about mixing convention with innovation. And But it was musical. It was still organic, you know, because he was still controlling it in a way. He said, this is what I want. 
And that's what he was getting. You know, he was still the producer, still the musician, still saying, this is what, how I want. And this is what I envisage. It was great to see that. Like I said, he, you know, he's, um, knowledge of music, innovation, all these things. I mean, I used to sit there. <laughs> I remember we were at Nomis once. I think Nomis was one of the places we recorded. So he was racing or recording at Nomis and we were sat outside around the back of it. And I'd got this artist deal with a um, guitar company called Godin. Golden guitars are made in Canada. Now they're very innovative guitars. They have not only the electric guitar sound, they also have an acoustic sound and they also have a, a synthesizer, MIDI output. And there's not a, I wouldn't say it's a pretty shape. Okay. <laughs> and it does look a bit like a coffee table uh, at the time because Nomis doesn't exist now. So it was quite early days, but I'd show him this guitar and he'd be like, What's that do? And what's this? And what's that? And, what? and I'll be like, well, this is the MIDI bit and this is a such and such. It's your genuine interest. And then on top of that, he, I would sit there playing, noodling away. But what I play when I'm noodling isn't what another person plays. I don't play the blues. I don't play kind of the songs that I know. I play kind of Indian rags and scales and uh, Korean stuff and Japanese stuff and things and techniques that I use to emulate instruments like that. And he picks up on this straight away and, you know, how the fact you do that? Show me how you did that. And how did you, you know, that intrigue, that interest, you could see it, you could hear it. He was always on it, noticed anything that was yeah. off the norm. And I think that's what our relationship was about. It was because I wasn't your kind of conventional player. He likes things that he hasn't seen before, he hasn't experienced before. And that was also part of the relationship that I brought something to the table, which was a little bit different performance wise. But it's very difficult to do something different, you know, on a guitar. And everyone always says, oh, we've seen it before, heard it before. But, you know, when you don't play in a 12-tone system, like on a piano, black and white key, and you play, in, you know, some kind of Indian classical music and there's notes in between. So, you know, my vision and my hearing is based upon all those fractions, not just those straightforward black and white notes. And he picks up on those. I think, he, I know he did because he used to go, I remember he used to tell Noel, <laughs> Noel G about them or he'd playing something. I, I used to show Paul some stuff and he'd play it and then he'd show it to Noel. And then Noel, if, when I met him, I only a couple of times, he'd be like, yeah, I know about you. Fucking sick and tired of hearing about your thing. <laughs> 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 yeah. the other and... <laughs> And that's how I know. That's how I know because coming full circle through him that I understand what that Paul, uh, you know, is hungry as a musician, always evolving, always moving forward, picking up information and knowledge from whoever and whenever. And everything being a, a source of inspiration in a way, well, that sounds things too. Absolutely. Still young, younger. You can see that in his playing. Mm. Younger heart. Young yeah. soul. No, punk attitude. Always there. Not the haircut, not the clothes, not the age. It's purely the soul, you know. Now we have to talk 22 Dreams. We have to talk about God. We have to talk about, am I right in thinking this is the first time that you'd provided, you'd done vocals on, on any recordings? It wasn't my idea. <laughs> <laughs> this is a spoken word track on 22 Dreams, the album 2008, a, a double album, um, an amazing piece of work. But he recorded a version with Steve Craddock. <laughs> I'll tell you the story. I don't know. Straight from the horse's mouth. Now, I went to the studio with a guitar on my back. I was down in London for whatever reason. And I thought, ring Paul up, see if he's free. I rang him up and he says, we're, I'm just in the studio. We're working. Uh, why don't you come over? So uh, I drove down, went to the studio with a guitar on my back, hoping to play a bit of guitar. You know, sneak a little sneaky one, get a bit of guitar. <laughs> so... 
he presents me, I walk in and he presents, we've been, like I said, we always taught religion. So he presents me with this piece of paper with these lyrics on it and says, what do you think of that? And I'm like, this guy is like a prolific and legendary songwriter. And he's asking me, what do I think of these lyrics? So, okay, I, I read it through and I thought, okay, it's kind of my territory. And I thought, I said, I agree with what you're saying. And I agree that, you know, your approach about your approach and your opinion, I, I think are very valid, uh, very honest. So in that respect, you know, I said that that's my two penneth if you want it. And he says, um, good. He says, now get in that room and go on. <laughs> go and read this out. <laughs> so that's how it, that came about. So I went in this live room, got this sheet of paper. I've only just had a little glance through it. So I'm going to read this out now and they're going to press record. Now, little did I know that there was already a chopper version of it, Steve Craddock's version on there. Now, <laughs> so I read through it and it's a one take kind of thing and I read it and it stumbles a bit. I listen to it and I think, oh yeah, that's when I kind of lost the sentence I was reading his handwriting and whatever. But it's recorded. Now I come back in the control room and he sat there at the mixing desk with his hands on two faders. And one fader's got my voice on it and the other fader's got his voice on it. So he's going, Steve, Aziz, Steve, Aziz. You know, he's pulling these faders up and down and then he turns around to me and says, yeah, God's definitely a mank. <laughs> and I think what he meant by that was purely the fact that he wanted a certain kind of tone to it. And you know, everyone knows the Brummie accent. It's not a gangster, is it? <laughs> it's not like, you can imagine like Dre or Jay-Z or whoever or Naz with <laughs> the Brummie accent. No offense, but it's quite a friendly accent, isn't it? It's rolled, yeah. rolled up, you know, tones to it. And whereas a mank is quite kind of, what you're looking at. He <laughs> 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 obviously, you know, he's got that harder tones, hasn't it? And it, I think that's what he was looking for, for the voice of God. Um, God, I'm such blasphemy, man. <laughs> Imagine me to, if my own Muslim community knew what I'd done. <laughs> blasphemy on this record. But thank God the two cultures don't meet. <laughs> <laughs> thank God nobody bought that record as well. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was a number one or anything. <laughs> I don't think anybody in the mosque bought that album, yeah. And um, so I was saved from that yeah otherwise there'd been a jihad on my ass so sonic kicks he performed live from start to finish i was there at the roundhouse he, they did every track in the order on the album it was his brand new album but your tracks were all played even sleep of the stream would have been played live by the waters been played live it was a real challenge for the band to play that live but god i don't think has ever been played live so here's an opportunity for you as is <laughs> can you can you remember it well i mean i didn't play the guitar i think that might have been chopper or, or paul but i think it was uh, steve Craddock did guitars on it um and there's vocals which is probably his wife yeah i've never played i mean i've never done that track i mean i was probably more interested in how i could recreate maybe by the waters and do a version of that uh, live but um yeah <laughs> it's complex the orchestral parts are the complex part i mean obviously his vocal and his singing you know it's just a vocal god <laughs> whereas i'm just like this you know atonal mank when i come to <laughs> Um, I saw some shows, you know, I've traveled down to various shows. When he's been in Manchester, he's rang up, or Steve's rang up and said, you know, you're coming over, <laughs> you're coming over to watch us get drunk. <laughs> 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 you know, the hotel after, and um, there's been various times. And I've got to know the whole family, so to speak, the transition of band as well, you know, from the original band to the change and then the new members. 
and um, not just that managers management wise and Kenny and his son and um, John his dad and the whole entourage you know let me in it's such an honor um, by every person connected to that you know the warmth kindness that they've shown is i'm not that i'm confident as a monk but i'm not that confident in terms of you know culturally and so forth of where i belong or where i sit but music's my no passports required Mm. (laughs) device through which you know create friendships and bonds with people you know we love music that's more important than anything else uh, in all honesty you know my, this music that we're talking about and the friendships I've made with Paul and Chopper and Steve and the band and so on it's about this journey about music about what music really is about and what it does for you and how it can build you, you know in the world's kind of going crazy around you and the stuff you read and the propaganda and the madness of it that the music is my no passports required device that friendships are built on um, music is created and through that creation uh, there's love there there's um, bonds and uh, camaraderie and all manner of things and, and that's me you know fully if you want to sum me up that's what I'm about not the dough it's not the money as Ian Brown says and I love quoting him oh is he he should be living in a mansion with a guitar shaped swimming pool <laughs> well, he's not it for the doll. <laughs> there's one thing I mean that, that leads me on to something I wanted to talk to you about and there's um, the, the mentoring sessions that you do it's fascinating so there's the the link with HMP Risley there's the music therapy for Keach there's mentoring young people in Hope Streets which is this initiative in Lancashire you know, the playing isn't just a vehicle to make you famous and make you money like you talk about you really care about this and you care about giving back I guess I'm a human being just like anybody else why wouldn't I care you know if um, if you you know you brought up not dragged up it's kind of you know the ethics and the values are there I got this I don't know about anybody else I don't know if you have this same feeling but when you have success when you achieve I also have this feeling of guilt that um, selfish that why I'm you know I'm enjoying this why can't I share some of that and and that's all it's about. I'm just trying to share what I have. And I, I don't have kids. Um, so I think it's also the fact that I've got all this experience and knowledge that I want to share that and pass it on and do some good for others so that when I pop my clogs, that you leave a mark in some way or, you know, that kind of, you know, what's your purpose on this earth? What have you accomplished? What have you passed on to anyone? And it is biology in a sense that you know cells pass on information uh, and hence you know how things are preserved people can all in the east you have pandits and astards and gurus and senseis and they pass on information word of mouth whereas in the west it's the written word and it's that kind of thing that it's important for me to pass on help or whatever i can even like you know, Christmas times I used to spend down in uh, London playing for the homeless shelters uh, for crisis. I just like to validate time in a sense that I don't want to be sat around stuffing my face and enjoying myself in that way when I could be doing something far more valuable for somebody. I mean, working in prisons was it was difficult, but to actually be able to this thing that I'm talking about about the communication of music that a person like me could sit there with somebody with very right-wing views in a prison. I'm not saying they all are, but with somebody specific, say, for instance, that normally on the street, there, there would be, you know, a clash just because of the color of my skin or whatever. But to sit there because we have a love for the jam or we have a love for the roses or whatever it may be, you know, common ground. I found that I had a value, a use in prisons 
because I don't believe in the system. I don't believe that the prisons are doing any good. I think they're just perpetuating things and people are coming out and doing the same thing. And it's not always their fault. And I don't think the system is designed to help people because it's political. You know, I'm going in there trying to teach guitar and then doing mentorships. And at the same time, the government is closing down the facilities for the prisons because one person escaped or used a facility to for his own purpose. But then that because there's an uproar in the community and, and the politicians want to be seen to do something. So then they say, oh, well, we've removed all privileges from, you know, prisons and there's no, you know, recreation this and not out. And it just doesn't work. You know, that that is not a way to help somebody. And yeah, you can write people off, but not all people in prisons are the same. Some people could be there because they're a stand-up person who stood up for their rights, but the law says you're in the wrong and they ended up in prison. It could be somebody, yeah, they fiddled the tax, but it don't make them a murderer. It's just diverse. Ian Brown was in prison, you know? It was the demise of the second album, or the first album's touring and what it could have been and into the second album. And I learned that lesson because I made that mistake. I was generalizing and stereotyping and they're human beings and as anybody who knows works in social services and you know does social work or caring or anything like this that people need help and you really need to get down to the issues involved here and to tackle them and not try and force things by saying oh you're a young kid you shouldn't be out on the streets at this time and blah 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 oh you know zero tolerance that's bullshit i'm i'm just saying this is me my personality no it's interesting because i think i see the magic of the work prison radio does now the prison radio association as well and it's the same kind right. of thing where you're you're getting prisoners to you know experiment with production that we've, we've just talked about and you know, things like you know with radio and presenting and stuff and the, and the change that adding those kind of skills it's all it's all linked isn't it absolutely i mean communication it's like being in a hospice like Keech and you know it's a children's hospice as well and it's kind of the first lesson that I learned is that you have to put yourself aside because most things are about self-pity and about how it affects you and how sorry you feel you know and you have to put that aside because it's not about you it's about the child it's about how long they've got to live and then the other side is that the parents will tell you I mean the child might have real problems communicating with people and the music is the key for me you know just to sit there and it's not about how good you are. That's the one most valuable lesson that I learned. It's not about how good you are at all. It's just about, can you play together? As soon as you do that, you've got a link, you've got a communication going on. And you don't need to explain anything. And for that brief moment or those times, there's pleasure. You know, you know there's pleasure in somebody's life which is going to end. And, you know, enough said. <laughs> that's all there is. The, 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 that's the goal. Will you, can you give a brief moment of pleasure to somebody uh, that they can keep with them? And we won't get into discussions of, you know, do you believe in life after death and so forth? But for this gift of life, I just kind of think that music is so important. And the government right now sent out this message that arts are not important and the cuts that they're making are going to be in those sectors. And they have so got it wrong. I think if you talk to any social worker, you will find that families are falling apart, relationships are falling apart, businesses, all that aspect outside are falling apart, that the whole foundations are crumbling because the neglect of people's well-being, mental health especially, is so important. It's far more important to me, and I think to a lot of other people, than a lot of the businesses that they say, oh, we're supporting, we're pouring money into this or the banking system, wherever it is, 
I think if your communities fall apart, if your families fall apart, what have you got left? What's the point in all these businesses and things like that, unless you haven't even got that happiness and families together and, and the foundations of a community and a community that builds, you know, links with other communities and the world as such. A, it's the old cliches, isn't it? You know, it starts at charity, starts at home and then you with your friends and your friend, you know, your family, friends and community. And, and I firmly believe that just of what I've seen and what I know of how difficult it has been for social workers. And I see myself that music is like that. Music is almost social work in that when you play and these bands are gigging and all these bands that you relate to through your life. I mean, don't you think that they're kind of doing social work in a way that yeah, they keep yeah. your mental health, your well-being up, the best time of your life, you were at uni or college and you met this girl, you end up with your wife or you've got kids and blah, blah, blah that came and that one song matters and the lyrics of it so resonate with you and all the inspiration from people like Paul Weller and Steve Craddock and Steve Wyatt, whoever, Mick Talbot, lifetime stuff, isn't it? Mm. Stays with you for life. Yeah. And I'm in this sober as a judge, <laughs> observing and kind of going, wow. I, I do believe in God. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of saying, you know, Allah Akbar, you know, God is great because of what I see in the souls of human beings around me, uh, the greatness of them. And I attribute to that, you know, gifts that we're given. Why is it I can play the guitar like myself, like nobody else? And Steve plays guitar like he does. And Paul plays the way he does and sings and the way he does and that voice that he's got. And why he's drum playing the way it is. And Mick Talbot's unbelievable command of, you know, keyboards and, and his new band. You know, it's just, it shines out of them for me. I, mm. I, it's almost gospel in a way, you know, but <laughs> I, I, I do, I, I believe in it from what I've seen and seeing desperation of people as well. At the same time, that music is just so important and key to your heart and soul, uh, integral to our lives. And this neglect of it and this cutting of the kind of budgets for the arts and things. And that's why I'm working in culture and arts sector, because I believe that, you know, it needs to be supported, not just the rock and roll thing. You know, how many times can you sling a TV out of a hotel room window, you know? <laughs> Probably <laughs> <laughs> more to life than that, eh? and it's not the same with an LCD anyway. <laughs> it doesn't have the same impact, does it? Hey, look, it's, it's, it's so lovely. I've got a couple of questions before you go. Before I ask those two questions, though, I have to ask you about LA 2008. You bump into Paul. He asks, "What are you doing tomorrow?" Tell me more. <laughs> so, I mean, these are all un uncanny kind of events. I, I mean, I. Um... I know my voice has gone up a pitch, yeah, an octave, but <laughs> you're excited <laughs> to tell the story. Yeah. It's unbelievable that the I'm in LA because I'm with a friend of mine, Alan, who's invited me over and say, Hey, you got a mate who lives out there, he's got a house and we can go and do some recording and hang out and I'll show you around LA and all that. And so I did, uh, went out there and uh, stayed at his house and we're in Santa Monica on the beach. You know, obviously a true man kind of running around, kind of, hey, check this out, check that out. Hey, whoa, 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 all this kind of thing. And I run into Chopper, I run into Steve Craddock on the beach, <laughs> looking like a lobster. And then I warned him, I told him to make sure he covered, you know, he's the right factor. But, um, and, and Steve says, was he? He says, we're over at this hotel. And he says, um, Paul's over there. Come and look over and say hello. So I was like gobsmacked. So I was like, you guys are here at the same time. And then I went over to the hotel and Paul's there and he's like shocked. So what are you doing here? And then it was just like all oh, mates together. And he's kind of, do you fancy um, getting up and guesting, you know, on a song and playing something with us? Uh, and I was like, wow. 
I'm here in LA, I'm on the beach and I'm going to go and do a gig as well um, at the Wilton Theatre. It was a very wow. famous. Yeah, wow. Kind of, so I said, yeah, absolutely. But I remember him saying to me, he says, but don't wear those shorts. I mean, you know, how <laughs> you know, he's smart and I'm more kind of street fashions and I like all that kind of thing. And he says, but don't wear them shorts and make sure you got some shoes and all this kind of thing. <laughs> the dress code for his band, which I'm like, Mate, I don't, you want me to wear a skirt and high heels? I'll, I'll be in it. I don't care. It's going to be such a laugh. So, um, and not only that, he asked me, what am I doing here? And I said, well, I'm just racing with my band here. And we, we're not a band, actually. We're recording some songs with the friends. He says, well, do you want to do the support? <laughs> and he says, with your band? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was different because when I supported him, at, uh, on that heliocentric called the uh, Illumination, it was myself, Andy Rock, Mike Joyce, the band for my album, Lahort Alongside. That was different. It was professional. It was, uh, you know, the Smiths and the Roses combined on stage supporting Weller's band. But this wasn't, they didn't know any of the people, um, and it was just mates. And I ended up doing the support as well as being on stage with <laughs> the Willard. I didn't have a guitar at the time, but I had PRS Guitars, an American company had um, arranged a couple of guitars for me. Um, so I've had an endorsement with them and then they arranged these guitars. Uh, PRS guitars are not loved in the, the mod community because, you know, that's more traditional. It's more conventional. Yeah. Rickenbacker, Gretsch, uh, Gibson, Fender, Epiphone, you know, these brands. It kind of goes hand in hand with scooters and stuff. So, and I turn up with this modern... <laughs> <laughs> guitar is white and gold, you know, it's like a pimp's idea of a guitar or something. <laughs> and he's like, fucking gay headstock that, mate. <laughs> he's looking at the head of the guitar. There's <laughs> a fucking gay headstock there. But there's nothing wrong with that, you know, as far as I'm concerned. But, <laughs> but again, you see, it's about his acceptance of the way he kind of, yeah. you know, I'm not like him. He knows that. And, uh, completely, you know, a clash of cultures and so forth. But this music thing brings us together. But yeah, the Wilson Theatre was, that's how it came about. It was a chance meeting on a beach with um, Steve Craddock. That's so funny. And, uh, I'm going over to him and him saying, do you fancy doing a song with me? Which I had no idea what it was, but I, I, I play by ear, so you can play me anything and I'll just play to it. I'll find the key and I'll, uh, right. I'll jump on. That's how I play. And that's how we roll. <laughs> that's amazing. God, what an incredible experience. Um, I had to ask you as well, you mentioned Shopper quite a few times, which is, I'm guessing, probably a nickname given to him by Paul because Paul does love giving people a nickname we've heard on this podcast from the General, Jonesy, etc. Um, you're known as the Bruce Lee of guitars. Did that come from Weller or somewhere else? <laughs> the Bruce Lee? I think that might have come from maybe Ian Brown. I mean, most of these things come from either Paul Weller or Ian Brown. I mean, this White Stripes from Bombay came from Paul. Bruce Lee of guitar, I think, yeah, that thing came from Ian Brown. Um, <laughs> you know, I just think differently about the guitar. Yeah. I, I use what is, you know, inbuilt in me, you know, heritage, culture, all those things. If that was one thing I've learned from the greats of the British music scene, like Paul and like Ian Brown and the Roses and Jam and stuff, is about the honesty, you know, about being you, about drawing on your heritage, about your background, where you come from, like Joy Division or wherever, you know, it creates a uniqueness and that uniqueness creates this, you know a unique sound and you develop um your uh, style and character and uh, within your music in that way if there's one lesson that i've learned in music it's been that and why i moved from probably what was a you got to bear in mind i came from like a prog rock background <laughs> you know playing from bands like asia i was coming out of asia you know steve howe's yes thing into wow. asia and you know all that blue jewelry and shit <laughs> and i'm in this world where it's a very 
Oh, I don't know. It's it, it's very quite elitist sometimes, you know, and and pure in a sense, and not very accepting as well sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Musically speaking, hey, that shit, that this is great, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> but I worked hard at it because I wanted to learn. I wanted to understand. You know, I come from a different background. I want to learn how a you know a kid from Woking works, how his mindset works, how, what his life is like. I want to know what a kid from somewhere else, you know, Glasgow, or, you know, Easter House or something, how that is, and uh, and my background, and then kind of find you know uh, inspiration from it or find the truths behind it, so that I can develop as an artist. Uh, I'm not a session player, you know. I I can do that, but. I want to be an, uh, just an artist in the way that sometimes other people have developed. So if anything, I could say that Paul helped me develop into uh, refining my own individuality, my own uniqueness, uh, you know, having confidence in yourself, in your own being. It's not about your technical ability levels. It's just about reaching inside as he's done. He never probably thought about it. He was just, just being him, having a good time with his mates. And as you can see by the the band, you know, and the jam and on stage, the performances, as you can see with the roses, you know, performances on stage, mates, camaraderie, the best times, best times of the life. Uh, yeah. And chemistry for me personally, I got to say that chemistry in a band is what creates the best, you know, outputs, I think. I mean, the strange, you know, what we didn't talk about was how much he contributed to my album that was never released. Middle Road was the EP that I released on vinyl and CD before the album came out, which was Law to Longside. I wanted my own band. I wanted to do something. You know, I, I'd got the confidence um, to write songs. And I don't mean because the roses were that bad <laughs> or something. I mean, it was because they showed me that honesty, you know, and all the values really work well when you're trying to express uh, something across in songwriting. And God, I was rubbing shoulders with the Roses, with uh, with Paul Weller and, and the Smiths. And that was my encouragement. And between those three, it gave me the confidence to write my songs with me at the heart of them, as in their true stories and a reflection of my life. So I, I wanted to put an album together. And I put this album together, Lahore to Longside, which has never been released. But this album has... Paul Weller, Steve White, The Stone Roses, The Smiths, uh, Denise from Primal Scream, God bless her soul, uh, she passed away, uh, Talvin Singh, uh, you know, Mercury Prize winner. It's an unbelievable album collection of people that you've never heard. That's nuts. And it's it's kind of linked to your dad's journey from Pakistan to to Manchester, is that right? Yeah, it's about that whole thing of my existence. My existence wouldn't happen if a a poor guy from a little village outside of Amritsar, uh, where the Amritsar massacre happened, obviously partitioned that happened. So if he he became Pakistani and then from Pakistan, he got a job with the Reuters and the Press Association and came to Manchester. So that journey, I called it Lahore to Longside, even though the journey was actually Amritsar to Lahore to Longside. It's a story of a working class poor guy came to Manchester and spawned a family and one of the his sons became a rock guitarist <laughs> in the Stone Roses and Simply Red and Asia and works with Weller and songwriter, blah, blah, blah. So it's a, it's a weird story, you know, a weird journey. And I turned that into an album of my Longside council estate experiences and also the influence that he had on me. Because I mean, I've written a symphony since then, you know, a South Asian symphony for the Manchester Camerata Orchestra, a big orchestra in Manchester, who do the Hacienda Classical thing, you know, the that's all. So his story is so 
it affects me so much. I, I created an album and a symphony and all manner just to tell that story. So this album came about and it came about through the help of friends from these bands. And in meeting Mike Joyce, I met Andy Rourke and then we formed a group finally. So the Smith's Rhythm Section and myself. But prior to that, as I had told you about meeting Paul and meeting Steve and being in the players with Steve, why? Because Steve had approached me about working with him and Mick Talbot and Damon Minchella and creating Clear the Decks, you know, an instrumental album, <laughs> you know, a bit like the meters or something. That was the motivation. It was that kind of approach. So I had invited Whitey and, um, you know, to come and play on the album. Um, on certain songs because I wanted uh, Mike Joyce to play drums on the other songs and Rennie was playing on one song and it was such a mad combination of people but I, I was backing it through my own money and with uh, friends who were acting as managers at the time and we formed my own label called No Label Records <laughs> I got angry one day and was like cursing the record labels and going fuck them I don't need no label I'll call it I'll start my own record <laughs> No Label Records so it was a kind of mank rant going on <laughs> formed this label No Label Records and then uh, afterwards I created Indus Records which is mine it's like the phoenix kind of thing about the, a birth of something after the demise of another and the Indus River being the birth of civilization so they say so this album came together and then Paul was like so this is the part where I'm, I'm going to try and explain how Paul is on several tracks on this album are playing guitar and vocals and um, Middle Road is his main vocal part because he did the choruses and I did a remix of it, 12 uh, kind of version of it. And it was, he took the lead vocal part as in the repetition of the chorus. He did backing vocals on others. Uh, I did the lead vocal and I couldn't believe that because I can't sing to save my life. You know, I'm, I'm a sometimes singer, you know, I'm a guitar geek, composer, sometimes singer. And there's this guy who's like the biggest, you know, UK vocalist, incredible vocalist in that sense of, you know... <laughs> you know incredible music as such and history and blah 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 he's doing backing vocals and I'm like it was making me feel very inferior <laughs> but I got the song across so a middle road came out I think it was when we were playing the Apollo during Illumination Tour that he hopped on stage because he'd played I can't remember it was the other way around but he just played the Hammond organ behind it um, and I wanted that thing that we did on the outro section of a song called The Other Side, which was uh, a street song. It was about um, my friends live on the other side, meaning the other street. They end up in prison or are dead. And I'm playing because of music. I was saved from that and ended up where I am. And at the end, there's an outro that goes out on a mad instrumental jam. And he played Hammond organ on it. I, it just sounded fantastic. And well, it was a bit of a crafty move. So I'll be honest about it. Okay. I knew that he was recording Illumination. And so I thought, why don't I tag on a few days at Jacob Studios when all his gear is set up, Whitey's drums are all set up, all the mics are in place, and therefore save a bit of dough and catch off the back of Illumination and record high quality vocals, guitars, blah, blah, blah. And Manny was in London at the time and he came and dropped some bass on this track, just about. He'd had a good night out, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember we were sat there, me, Paul, well, uh, Manny, and we were just like, Manny's playing the bass and me and Paul were like, come on, Manny, come on. And he was like, oh, I'm banjoed, mate. I can't know. <laughs> and Paul's like, nah, nah, you've got it. You've got it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> he dropped some bass on it too. So Manny played bass on the Marassi an instrumental track 
uh, that came out on Melody Makers magazine, the ape kind of cassette that used to be on the front. And then Paul dropped these keyboard parts and some guitars on other songs as well on the album. So I ended up with this album, The Heart of Longside, with the greats on it, <laughs> the greats from the Smiths, from the Roses, from the Jam and, uh, and Style Council and, um, and Denise, God rest her soul, you know, from Primal Screen, who sang on Get Your Rocks Off and Don't mm. Fight It, Feel It and Scream a darker, basically, you know, everyone knows her voice. And, um, Talvin Singh gave me some tabla for two of the tracks. <laughs> it was a right and I never released it. Why did you? I, I didn't realize it had never come out. Why did it never come out? I still have it. I mean, you'll find it online in different bits and dribs and drabs because yeah. people load and they shouldn't and, or just in general, there's snips here and I, I will do. I'm going to put it up there. But when it came out, uh, my record label fell apart. The finances fell apart, even though I was funding it as well. Complete carnage. So there was no finances to actually, because the EP had done well. It was selling at the Weller shows, basically. You know, yeah. and because he was, he played a big part on that EP Middle Road. So then ob the obvious thing was to follow on with my album and with all these superstars on it. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to keep focus. This is my album and this, these songs are my Mancunian council estate songs. That's what it was about. But it was turning into this monster, <laughs> you know, super groupy kind of whatever you want to call it. But hey, I take my hats off to him. He, he volunteered, you know, a lot of his playing. I didn't even need to ask him, you know, when we supported him on tour, um, he was watching, the band was watching. Obviously, they were watching Mike Joyce and Andy Rock, who wouldn't be watching the Smiths Rhythm section mm. supporting you at a gig. But oh, I've got to tell you, Paul's not a big Smiths fan. <laughs> I think that's where the North and South divide comes in. All right. <laughs> Smiths, I think it's because it's miserable and you don't like that kind of thing and uh, whatevs. They watched before the show and he was fascinated by these parts and things. I mean, obviously some parts were probably not. We're still developing and substandard because I was only developing as a songwriter. And But some parts were unique to me. You know, they had my influences in the kind of Indian classical kind of, not Indian classical, but they had the remnants of it. You know, I just kind of steal from bits from here and there. And um, he got involved and supported it and asked me to do the support tours and, and played on the album. You know, all these beautiful Mellotron parts. And I mean, if you listen to this song called The Other Side, if you ever got an opportunity, you'll see what I mean. The middle eight section, he's put Mellotron flutes on it and, and then this Mellotron strings and then goes out on an old Hammond, which he had, you know, set up in, <laughs> like I said, in the studio. But wow, you know, for somebody like me at that time, I didn't have the money to do this. And yet I've got this quality, this unbelievable lineup, this contribution. All these instruments and the, you know, vintage nature of them and the pure quality, you know. And so I'm quite happy, even if the album was never released, I'm, I'm kind of happy to have something that other people don't have in their collection. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah you've got it. You can put it on. Yeah, nice. And then you can search it, you can try and find it. And I guess all the time, but the CDs, when they were man manufactured by beggars, uh, they came out wrong. <laughs> so I had boxes and boxes of these things I couldn't sell, I couldn't release because the songs oh, were in the wrong order. Oh, or, no. Oh, man. An issue. Yeah. And then... The band never went anywhere because 9-11 hit. And when 9-11 hit, our US tour was cancelled. I think that's we only got as far as doing like the Brat Awards and things like that and playing at the Astoria on a certain night. And it was going to go places, but then 9-11 hit or everything was cancelled. Um, anything with a Muslim name on it was definitely not getting yeah. a booking for US. And our US tour was cancelled. And then it just imploded. The band imploded. Uh, Mike and Andy went off to do something else. And... Um, 
I carried on doing what I was doing. Um, but that's the album and Paul played such a big part in it and so did Steve White, you know, and then the players came about, you know, that whole thing. Um, and working with Mick was unbelievable and Steve and Damon. But, uh, you know, the style council, I can't imagine what it must have been like then because every line he plays was a melody. Yeah. <laughs> every yeah. line he played was a melody. Unbelievable. And Whitey's playing, drum playing is just second to none. Uh, Damon's bass playing is rock solid, uh, rock solid. Such a great line. And it's a shame that the players didn't, for me personally, didn't go the way it should have gone from that first album, you know, Clear the Decks, because that was the idea, the concept of why don't we do instrumental music, grooves, and just go out and tour that? Not put a vocalist in because it gave the band the room to flex their muscles. It gave Mick Talbot the room to flex his muscles. Whitey to do his thing and me to play, you know, grooves and uh, guitar licks. I'm not Steve Cropper, but it was such a great concept, but it went off track. It went off on a tangent. Unfortunately for me, two albums were being recorded at the same time, the second player's album. And I was working, I think, on Golden Greats at the time for uh, Ian Brown. They had a time agenda and I was, what was my priority, which yeah, was the yeah. Brown albums, which I was writing songs for. And I was writing songs for that, but I was committed, you know. Well, hey oh. I've got two final questions for you. Thanks, this has been so lovely. I've had a, such a blast chatting to you. Number two, Danny. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, <laughs> you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council, or solo. What's it going to be? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's got to be the jam for a start. I'm kind of um, split, but uh, that's entertainment for me is still just everything. Everything a song should be, everything a band should be, everything youth is lyrically. For me, that energy, youth, life, that's what that says to me. Love it. Love it. Now, the purpose of this podcast is not only to talk to lovely people like yourself, but it's to get that meeting with Paul, to get that interview I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, hey, when it happens, what should I ask him? And I'm hoping you'll have a good one being the sober member of all these meetings whilst he's been pissed. So tell me something I should talk to him about. Oh, God. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, when did he stop drinking? Uh, maybe the, the whys and the so forth about that. I'd love to know, you know, how that came about. I've not actually sat there and talked about it because I just didn't feel it my business. But uh, hey, I think you could get away with it, you know. <laughs> it should be my business. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me, Mazzies. And thanks so much for your time, man. And very best of luck for the future, pal. Pleasure, Danny. Thank you very much for having us. Oh, thanks for asking the right questions, mate. Cheers. There you go. I told you it was a good one. My thanks once again to Aziz Ibrahim. What a guest. And don't forget, you can check out more details about Aziz on his website. You'll find the link in the show notes. You can check out his discography, his legacy, his current projects, his videos and upcoming tour dates all on the website too. Next up on the podcast, we hear from Chris Green, the man behind the new Paul Weller inspired mod themed heartwarming film, The Pebble and the Boy which opens in cinemas across the UK from Friday, 27th of August. Go to facebook.com forward slash Pebble and the Boy for cities and showtimes. Make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review and share on social media. You can also buy me a coffee. And thanks to those of you who've done that so far, you can find the information about that and my guests in the show notes. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.